that Jesus walked out of the grave, I will ask you, why do you think and why do you act like Jesus is dead when really He's alive? Why do you think and act like Jesus is dead when something as monumental as the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happens, and it did. It has radical implications for your beliefs and for your life. Now forget about all the people out in the world for a minute. People who do not profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. People who look at this story and think it is just a hopeless myth. Forget about them for a minute, but think about us. Think about the church of Christ. Why do we think and act like Jesus is dead when really He's alive? Why do we fail to recognize and live out the implications of the resurrection of Christ in our lives? What implications? What radical implications for my beliefs and for my life? Before Luke would have us think about that, it seems that he would want us to focus on the fact of the resurrection itself. He wants us to focus on the resurrection's veracity, its historicity, its truthfulness. He wants you to come face to face with the reality that Jesus is indeed alive. Remember what Luke told the man to whom he was writing the gospel. He said, I have investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth of the things that you have been taught. And Luke under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's power attending the preaching this morning, approaches us with the same direction. He knows that we have been taught the truth of the resurrection, but we have Luke's careful account in order to confirm in our minds that it actually happened. And in fact, the way in which Luke records the event of the resurrection is written sort of as an apology, not in the I'm sorry sense, but in the apologetic sense. He is defending the truth of this radical event in world history that Jesus was dead and then was risen from the dead. The kinds of things that he says, the details that he leaves in, the ones that he leaves out, all testify to the fact that he wants us to think about it really happened. Because if we don't believe it really happened, of course, the implications are meaningless and worthless. In fact, our whole faith is a joke. But Luke tells us this morning... And it is proclaimed to us that it did actually happen. First of all, think about this. Luke goes out of the way to testify to us that Jesus indeed was really dead. He was dead. He was not swooning. He was not in a coma. He was dead. Joseph had taken Jesus' body off of the cross, which we know could not have happened unless he was really dead. Now, Luke doesn't talk about the way in which they verified it. We learn that from John. But they did not break Jesus' legs, that is, the soldiers. Instead, a soldier pierced his side and blood and water flowed from his side to verify that he was really dead because the soldiers would not allow a man who had been convicted of the crime and set to crucifixion to be on the cross and then come down unless he had died. He was indeed really dead. The women were witnesses to Jesus being laid in the tomb before the tomb was sealed. Luke tells us that because he wants us to know that people saw him come down off the cross. Joseph saw him dead and the women also saw him dead. The women went home 
knowing that he was dead. Not hopeful that he would rise. Why? Because he was dead. They went home to prepare the spices to give him the appropriate burial. To treat the body. To put it formally uh, to rest. You see, Luke wants us to know, first of all, he was really dead. You ought not to doubt that. And there are great irregularities, aren't there, in the events after the burial. I mean, this is no normal uh, burial and death of a man. Look at verse 2 of chapter 24. They, they come and they find the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, did the women expect that? Of course not. What they expected was to come to the tomb that was sealed with the stone. Somehow then, to move it and get in to prepare the body properly. Right? But verse 3, then also another irregularity. They entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So not only is the stone moved away, but the body of the Lord Jesus isn't even in there anymore. Great irregularity. Starting to give you the idea, Luke, is that something is not the same. He hasn't proven the resurrection yet, or even asserted it. But the women go inside the tomb, they see that Jesus' body is not there, and they become perplexed. They become perplexed. Look at verse 4. They are sitting there wondering about these things. They didn't immediately conclude that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were wondering about it, maybe thinking that perhaps somebody had snuck into the tomb and stolen the body. Right? But Luke goes on. I don't only want to tell you about the irregularities in this particular death, Luke says, but I want you to see something about the fulfillment of predictions that will give testimony to the truth of this event. Look, the angels appear. and What do they say to the women? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So there is prediction that comes before the actual event, that when women see the irregularity of the stone being moved away, when they see the irregularity of the body being gone away, don't think of the body being stolen. The prophecies that came before that would account for these irregularities are that Jesus had to die and would be risen from the dead. Apparently, Jesus had used these exact specific words to these women when he was walking with them before. And it's not only the prophecy that the angels pronounce was made beforehand, but Jesus later, when he appears on the road to Cleopas and his companion, the road to Emmaus, what does he say? He talks to them about all of the Old Testament Scripture and how all of it points to him and how the many places in all of the writings of the Old Testament point to the resurrection, the coming back to life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the predictions. This is what Luke is telling you. It was testimony to the women. It was testimony to Cleopas and his companion. And it's a testimony to you this morning. If you look at all of the Old Testament Scriptures and you read even the words of Christ before He went into the grave, He talks about, through His Word and by His Spirit, coming to life from the dead. It's a fact. He predicted it and later it happened. That's what accounts for all the irregularities that happened surrounding his death. But, of course, Luke goes on further. He gives more proof, if you want to use that word. Notice that the way he composes this particular passage is very concerned about establishing witnesses. Witnesses who will be able to verify what they saw. He is careful, isn't he, to mention names. That's 
For example, why he mentions particular names in verse 10 of Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, James and of Joanna. And you notice he mentions there uh, and some other women or some others who were with them. Why doesn't he mention them? Because he's an historian and he probably wasn't sure who exactly those other women were, but he knew that the people in his generation who would be able to read his writing, he knew that Theophilus could look up Joanna and could look up Mary Magdalene and look up Mary, mother of James and go to them and ask them what happened. Witnesses are being established, you see. Witnesses are being established even for the future, for the second generation, after Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and Theophilus, all of them pass off the scene. You have the families and the close followers of those who believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and those who witnessed it, who can give testimony to the first-hand account of those who saw it themselves. Luke is being very careful to establish witnesses in this story. Notice another thing. There is the presence of skepticism that Luke is careful to record. Why does Luke talk about the skepticism or the curiosity of the people who find these irregularities? And the idea is starting to break out that Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, he records the skepticism because if people weren't skeptical, then this thing must be a fantasy. Because, I mean, let's face it, if somebody walked in here and told you that somebody rose from the dead, the first thing that you would say is, I don't believe it. You're crazy. And then you might get to the point, before you put that person out here, you might tell them, well, if it's true, then I want proof. Because I am skeptical. Because coming out of the grave doesn't happen every day. And many of the people who would come into contact with the preaching of the gospel in this generation, when the story happened, and of course in the coming generations, would not have been witness to the other miracles which Jesus had performed. It may be easier for somebody to believe that Jesus came out of the grave if they saw him, say, walk up to that widow's son who was laying in the coffin dead and touch him and he'd tell him to rise up and he got up and walked out of it. It might be easier for them, but Luke is aware, as an historian, that he must record the skepticism to acknowledge that this is a radical claim. If nobody was skeptical, then it must be a fantasy. It must be fiction. It must be a lie, a myth. But he records the skepticism, for example, in verse 11, of who? Of the disciples, the 11 minus 1, whose 12 minus 1 is Judas who betrayed Jesus, no longer with the 11. They, in verse 11, do not believe the woman because their words seem to them like nonsense. <laughs> Crazy woman and your wife's tales? What do you mean? He's... What do you mean they told you he rose from the dead? That's crazy. And if they didn't have that response, we wouldn't believe this story. Because it is, in a sense, crazy. And Luke wants us to see that this is real. He's an historian and he acknowledges the radical nature of this claim, but it is true. It's a very honest account, isn't it? It is not an account that hmm, smells like somebody is fabricating a story trying to pretend like, oh, it was so obvious to everybody. No, it wasn't obvious, because the idea of a resurrection is not obvious. Presence of skepticism there, verse 12. Peter gets up and runs to the tomb, and bending over, he sees the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering himself 
what had happened. Now, the interesting thing about this is Luke doesn't mention something that John does in his Gospel. Because in John's Gospel, when he tells the story, he talks about John himself going with Peter to the tomb. In fact, giving the image that they were racing to see who could get there first. And what John says is that immediately when John saw what had happened, when he examined the evidence, he believed the resurrection right away. But John doesn't really say how Peter processed the whole thing. And here Luke gives us a detail about how Peter processed the whole thing. And very likely, the reason why Peter is emphasizing Luke's Gospel is exactly to show his own skepticism. He was wondering to himself what had happened. He didn't come to a a firm, quick, decisive conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead like John did. But he was looking at the evidence and was wondering. He was skeptical, just like the eleven of them were together when those crazy women came and gave the story, right? All of this is meant to bolster the reality of the resurrection because there was clearly skepticism. Skepticism that would not be in this story if it was fabricated. See the same thing in verses 22-24. Some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find His body. Some of our companions went to the tomb. Verse 24, found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. See that last phrase? Him they did not see? They were not convinced just by the irregularities. They needed to see Him. Or they needed further evidence. They were skeptical. And Luke doesn't shy away from that. You know why? Because it's true what happened. Now look at verse 30. He does. And you could have asked Cleopas if you were walking around in those days. He does reveal himself to them. He was at the table with them. He takes bread and gives thanks and breaks it and begins to give it to them. And that tips it off, doesn't it? Their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. So here is Jesus, somehow looking like Himself, but somehow changed. I mean, changed in the sense that, what, verse 31, He's able to disappear immediately from their sight. It doesn't seem like that means He just slipped out the back door. That sounds kind of supernatural, doesn't it? That sounds kind of like in his glorified body he's doing things, and there are other accounts of this too in the Gospels, that he's doing things that just don't happen in the unglorified state for a body. And we'll talk more about Jesus doing those things in the coming weeks. But he disappears from their side. They recognize him when what? What tips it off? When he speaks to them and institutes to them the Lord's Supper or not institutes it, but gives them the Lord's Supper. I mean, the language is very clear. He took bread, he gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. So they recognized Jesus because of the words that he used, because they remember what the disciples told them about how the Lord's Supper exactly was instituted. You know that the exact words even were important to the disciples because you see Paul repeating them verbatim later in his letters. Didn't just give them some loose language, but they memorized, even probably at an early time, the words of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which Jesus had instituted them in that actual last supper He had with them. 
And they focused on those words. The Lord's Supper was at the center of the life of Jesus' disciples right at the beginning from when He died. They were talking about those things so that when Jesus appeared and used those words, they recognized Him. Their eyes were opened. They saw Him. Became witnesses of the resurrection. All of these details, all of the ways in which this story has been told are particularly to get you to come face to face with the fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He was dead and now He is alive. He is alive. It's not a fantasy. It's not a myth. It's true. And skeptics over the time of Luke's writing and 2,000 years since that time will continue to try and come up with their poking holes in the different account of the Gospels and poking holes in believing these things. Scripture doesn't shy away from that. It rebukes that. It says not only have those questions been answered with real-world tests and witness verification and the skeptics answered, but it just exposes the fundamental sinfulness of man to deny the possibility of the supernatural, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just another reflection of man's hatred against God. That in the face of this obvious evidence which we are hearing, which Theophilus has been hearing, all of the glorious miracles really culminating in the resurrection, that people will still resist and reject Christ. By the way, this is why people don't believe the Scripture and the resurrection. It's not because they don't have enough information. They have more than enough information. And anybody, if they had, if anybody could have, a neutral, objective mind would come into contact and study the historic record and they would come to the true knowledge of the Scripture. The only reason they don't is because their minds have been corrupted and they hate God and their hearts are hardened. Their minds are hardened even against Him. So they resist the evidence. And by the way, the reason why we believe it is not because we figured it all out when we examined the evidence, but it's that the Holy Spirit, by His grace and power, opened our blind and sinful eyes to see the same historic record which we saw before and rejected or ignored or were ignorant about. He brought us into contact with it and caused us to see its truthfulness and to believe. That's a great thing to be thankful for. That you can see these evidences and really see them. But that brings us back to the first question. So you're convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. Why do you still think and live like He's still in the grave? Why do you still think and live like He's dead? I mean, when something as monumental as His resurrection actually happens, it has radical implications for your life and for your beliefs. What are they? I'll give you three. I'll give you three. And there are obviously a lot. In one sense, we could say everything that we believe and everything that we do is an implication of His resurrection. But I want us to focus on three of this morning. Uh, the first one is this. You're convinced that Jesus is alive and not dead. 
then you are also convinced that His sacrifice for your sins has been accepted by the Father. And when God, by the power of the Spirit, brings Jesus out of the grave, that is a demonstration to you that you may look at all of your past sins and all of your sins even today and in the past week and all of the sins that you may commit in the future and you may say that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And I am redeemed and I have the dignity of a child of God. It has nothing to do with myself. I am weak. I am sinful. I struggle. I have good days and bad. But the fact that Jesus came out of the grave means you can set aside all of your guilt and shame. You don't have to let your past torment you. Of course, we focused on this last week when we talked about the crucifixion, but the resurrection is important because God the Father bringing Christ out of the grave is saying to all of you, it is done. There is no more punishment left. All of the punishment has been completed. If it wasn't, Jesus would still be in the grave or he would have to die another death. But he said it was finished and the Father approved. The Father agreed by bringing him out of the grave. There's no more guilt and shame. It's already been taken care of. The sacrifice has been accepted. Some of you need to move on with your life and stop wallowing in your past and wallowing even in your sins today as if Christ has not died and now risen to testify to you that He loves you and He has embraced you. It's not arrogant to look at the resurrection of Christ and say, yes, all of my life is in the resurrection and all of the payment has been made and God has accepted it. He is the righteous one who has been raised. He has met all of the demands of the law. I am clothed in His righteousness. I will be rewarded for all of His good works. It is not arrogant to say that. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul talks about Abraham. And he says, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And if you know anything about Abraham, Abraham did waver, didn't he? But he didn't waver, the Apostle says, through unbelief regarding the promise of God. If there is one thing that Abraham took with full force and boldly, it was that God had promised to bless him in spite of who he was, in spite of all of the circumstances around him, in spite of the impossibility of all the promises that he made to him, both earthly promises and spiritual promises, if you will. Abraham said, I believe that promise. And it's the same promise that Christ makes to us. This is what Paul says. He says, that's why it is credit to him as righteousness. Those words were not written for him alone, but also for you, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, because Jesus told us, we confess our sins to him. If we cast ourselves upon him, he will by no means cast us out. He will not, not maybe, I will cast... Maybe I will forgive you if you come to me. I might cast you out if you are holy enough, if you measure up enough at the end, if you put yourself on the balance scale of I'm, I do more good things than bad, I, I'm better than that group of people or that person in the church. 
I know more, so I may... No, none of that. That's all nonsense. That's the false gospel. The truth is, Jesus said, if you confess your absolute unworthiness and sinfulness to me, I will by no means cast you out. The proof of that is that Christ came out of the grave. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul says. So stop acting and thinking like Jesus is dead. Meaning, get over your sin. Okay? It's done. Jesus has put it to death. Stop wallowing in your guilt and in your shame and just go forward in repentance and thankful obedience. Stop wrangling over the question, am I really saved? Just cling to the promise and go forward in repentance. You know what? Look at us. Look at us. Outwardly, what are we? Nothing. But you, we have a dignity that far surpasses anyone in the world that would be outside of Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are the chosen people of God. We are the sheep of His pasture. He has shown His incredible mercy to us. You see the dignity that you have. Don't treat yourself like one who has been despised and judged because you have not been judged. You have been saved and loved by Christ. Second, what implication for my life? Well, Jesus came out of the grave, it means that the whole glorification of the universe is coming. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God, the eternal natural Son of God. But by His resurrection from the dead, the Apostle Paul is saying, He took on a different title, office, to Himself. It was called the Son of God with power. Meaning, He was the one who is able to effect, to bring in the glorification of all of the universe. And we've seen this all along. He is able to reverse the curse of the fallen world. All of the miracles that we have seen along the way that He was performing, right? He comes to the dark place and He's turning the lights on in the dark world. He's reversing the curse of physical ails. He's reversing the curse of loneliness and being marginalized and being outcast. He's reversing the curse of sin and the consequences of sin. He's demonstrating His power to do that. And when He comes out of the grave, He is the forerunner of all of the glorification being unleashed in all of its splendor and power. Not just piecemeal like it has been in the Gospels. But the whole new heavens and the new earth. In one sense, the resurrection right, is a... a a culmination of all of the miracles that came before. But in another sense, the resurrection is only the first fruits of all of the physical miracles that will come after when He unleashes His power in all of the world to glorify the universe. And the glorification is coming. Jesus is alive. So live your life like you believe that. What does that mean? That means that your hope is not in this life, but it is in the life to come. And that 
meets us, particularly when we find ourselves suffering. Why do we suffer? We suffer because we get sick. We suffer because we die. We suffer uh, because we have consequences of other people's uh, sins coming into our lives. And people become consumed with their problems in their relationships and their problems in whatever it might be, meeting the bills, uh, might be persecution for their faith or trials or trouble or hardship or providences in your life that you don't like. And your character is to what? Complain and constantly be downcast And it's because you aren't living in light of the glorification because you're living as if you think that what is going on right now and what is happening right now in this life is the be-all and end-all. But if you believe that Jesus is alive, the fact is the glorification is coming and you are going to be a part of it. So get your eyes off of this life and look toward the life to come and have the dignity and the joy and the peace of the inheritance that is yours. It's a glorification that will be a lot longer than the time in which you are suffering now. That's why Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. Sons of God is a title for you when you're glorified. Small s. Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God. At the resurrection, He became the Son of God in power, meaning the one who ushers in the glorification. And your title is Son of God because you will share in that same glory. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies, don't we? In this hope we were saved. If we hope for what we do not yet have then, Paul says, we wait for it patiently. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Not death, life, angels, nor demons, present, future, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. Be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, it's easy to tell you this when you're not struggling. And some of you are struggling. Some of you aren't, but you probably will. Unless the Lord Jesus returns, you're probably going to get sick. You're probably going to die. You're probably going to have a breakdown in some of your relationships. You're probably going to struggle. You're probably going to suffer. And I'll tell you now before you face it, live in light of the glorification. And don't let it defeat you. Because the glory is yours. And act and think like He is alive. Because He is. Third and last. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. This is Romans 6. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. 
Now, I could launch, obviously, right into a long list of all of the law of God to explain that we have the duty now to obey Him because the image that the Scripture gives us is that when Jesus comes out of the grave, that is an image of us, our old selves, dying to sin, actually in our lives, our sanctification, our old selves dying to sin and now living out obedience to God out of gratitude. And so we could list everything, really, which we won't do. But we will say a couple of things. Uh, the first is not something that Luke particularly has been concerned about. Uh, but it's something that is regularly addressed in the Scripture and I think particularly applicable to think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and how it affects our lives. If Jesus was alive and we believe that, where would we go? Well, we'd go to where He is, right? Now, you see where I'm going to go with this. If, if Jesus actually lived somewhere, then we'd want to go where He was as His followers, right? And then I think about people who profess to be Christians and profess to believe that Jesus is alive. I think of the author of the Hebrews saying, let us not give up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We hear that Jesus is alive and He has ascended into heaven and He meets His people in special ways through the preaching of the Word of God and through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That He meets covenantally with His people Lord's Day by Lord's Day in ways that He does not meet with them in our private expressions of piety and holiness, which are also good. And the people of God in our culture, dare I say it, in our own church, with all of our clarity of doctrine and conviction about that and clarity from the Word of God and all of our having received the inheritance of our forefathers, some of us been in this church for upwards of 70 years, all of us as a church family, us have a people who believe that Jesus is alive and having a problem coming to church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. I don't understand that. That is absolutely inconsistent. You might as well believe that Jesus is dead and in the grave because when He is alive and you follow Him, you go to where He is. Yeah, that's law. The implication of Jesus being alive. You go to meet Him because He calls you to meet Him. And you don't let the things of this world distract you from that. Because that's like saying Jesus is not alive. He's still in the tomb. Alright, another thing. Two things quickly. And this third point that Luke has been concerned about all along. One is money. You know, it's always, uh, I've told you before, when we've approached the topic of money through the Gospel of Luke, three, four, five times, because it keeps coming up. It's always awkward for a pastor to uh, bring these things up, but it's going to stop being awkward. Because Luke says, you've got to live in light of the glorification, you've got to live in light of the resurrection, 
John the baptizer in chapter 3 told those who had a lot to share with others. He told the tax collectors to stop swindling. In chapter 12, he talked about the rich fool. In chapter 16, he talked about the rich man and Lazarus. In chapter 18, he talked about the rich young ruler. In chapter 19, he talked about the parable of the, of the ten minors. And that's just an overview. He has talked many places in his gospel, quoting Jesus himself, castigating the Pharisees for their love of money. And he comes right to us and he says, if you believe that I'm alive, then you live in light of the glorification when you will have everything and you use your money now as a good steward. Forget the outside world. Forget other churches. Think about us. And think about if we're being obedient personally to our own call of God to regularly and generously and joyfully with great privilege and and happiness and liberality to give fruitfully to the kingdom. You say, oh, the church is stretching itself. And that is fantastic. That is a privilege. I'm ashamed. To tell you the truth, I'm ashamed that the church council has to put out a financial report every year and wonder about, oh boy, we're behind again, we're behind again. People say, oh, see, now we're extending ourselves too far. When really, when people in our church, and we've seen this over the history of the church, long before I even got here, whenever the church got it in their minds that they needed to meet their churchly obligations, they stepped up and they did it. And you are lying to yourself if you think you don't have a part in that. You're lying to yourself if you think that it's not a spiritual problem that prevents us from being generous and giving with liberality. Because we know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is a snare and a trap for all of us. Look at us. Southern California Christians living in a culture that is more uh, materially glorious than anyone in the history of mankind. And a local church which supposedly believes in the glorification, which is a lot longer than our retirements, by the way, that we are very generous toward those who are able have trouble meeting our budgetary obligations. Am I being direct enough? The last place I want to follow Luke's lead in thinking about our personal piety in prayer. If we believe that Jesus is alive, when we won't ignore him, will we? Right? I mean, if he's dead in the grave, then there's, n- there's nothing to do. But if he's alive, then we'll call upon him. He gives us the model prayer in chapter 11. He gets after the disciples in the garden before he goes to death because they'd rather sleep than pray to him. He, if he is alive, you see, we won't ignore him. We'll pray to him. Is it, is it a reason for us to be ashamed? Ontario URC, that as the elders are trying to lead us in prayer groups for outreach, that maybe with the exception of one, It is one of the hardest tasks even to get anybody out. Is it reason to be ashamed, pastor and elders, that we find it not a privilege but a chore to organize these things and to be faithful in prayer for the people of God here? To pray for those of God's precious people in our district? To care for them? To see how they are doing? This cuts me 
right to the heart, praying privately to the Lord, thanking Him for His mercies, being faithful in prayer, pleading for Him to give us the strength to resist temptation. See, if we believe that He's alive and the glorification is coming, it just flows out, doesn't it? Naturally, out of the redeemed heart. And He calls us to live this way. Don't think and act like He's dead. Because He's not. He's redeemed us. He has justified us. He has accepted us. And it's our privilege now to live in His service, to be sustained by Him through all the trials of this life until He brings us into glory, which He will certainly do. And to that, all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for bringing Christ out of the grave. What a glorious display to us that You have accepted us in Him. And a glorious display of the glorification which is coming, which is ours. Help us to live in light of that truth. Help us to honor Him, to forsake the world, to stop being lazy, and to go forward in thankful obedience. For we ask in Christ's name alone, Amen. Our closing song is number 191. One hundred ninety-one. It's a great and a, a serious, majestic song, giving praise to the Lord, singing a new song to Him, for He has redeemed us. He has worked redemption in history. Uh, to His glory and our benefit. We'll sing the first two and the last. One, two, and four. 191.
And the parting blessing of our God. May the Lord rescue you from every evil attack and bring you safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.